Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. Absolutely, because I wouldn't have it any other way. I, You know, I can't imagine life without studying history, uh, without knowing the things that happened in the past and on some kind of a substantive level. I mean, everybody knows something of history. Even the people who don't study history know something. You pick it up here and there in conversation and movies and uh, occasionally in books, assuming those people actually read books, which is a little bit of a stretch. But everybody knows a little bit of something about history, of course. But um, to know something substantive about history really informs our experience and tells us the direction, the momentum of time and, you know, where people come from and where they're going. Because history does repeat itself. You know, and in times like these, you know, recent events, again, remind us that the lessons of history are very important because they tend to repeat. Those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. You know, and what's, you know, what's some of the lessons of history? You know, one one of the lessons of history, you know, segueing a little bit of away from the Founding Fathers just for a moment as a sidebar. One of the lessons from history is a typical European country under some kind of dispute, border dispute population dispute, relies on promises from some other, a little bit more distant European power, or maybe even a, a power further away than Europe, they rely on promises made to secure their sovereignty and their security. Bad things usually happen. Am I right? I mean, because this has happened before, right? Thinking like the 1930s, probably a, an accurate example of that can be found. And then here we are again. So if any of you ever doubted that history repeats itself or that you would live to see history repeat itself, think again, because you're seeing it. You are watching history repeat itself all over again, and it didn't even take very long for it to happen. There are people alive today who witnessed the last time this happened, that example that I that I give you from the 1930s. People still alive who saw that one. They're still there, and they're seeing it again. I wonder sometimes if they even know what they're seeing, though. Because, again, some people, I mean, history could be staring them right in the face, smacking them upside the head with a rolled-up newspaper, and they still don't know it. It's really a curious phenomenon. I don't, you know, I, I marvel at that sometimes. I don't know whether it's that people are just so dense they can't understand it, or whether they just don't want to. So they're living in denial. Kind of a, a self-imposed stupidity, for lack of a better way of putting it. But history is a very important topic. Certainly not treated as an important topic in the school system, because it's not, not in the United States anyway. And apparently, you know, Europe has problems with that too, as evidenced by recent events. But it certainly should be treated as an important subject of study, uh, not to be manipulated, not to be used and abused, but to be respected for what it is and to be taught accurately. It's why we go to the source material on this podcast. It's hard to refute what John Adams said when I'm reading it right from the letters. It's hard to refute what George Washington said when I'm reading it right off of the pages that he wrote. You can't manipulate that, can you? I mean, you could do it, I suppose, by cherry-picking and all these other things. But I do curate these letters. That is to say, I select them and I select the excerpts from the letters, but we read so many of them. 
And like like I've mentioned before, and much to the chagrin of certain people who cruise into this podcast, I am still stuck in 1774 and 75. And we will be for a little while longer, yet still stuck in 1774 and 75. We haven't even begun to get into 1776 yet. That's a that's a distant thought at this point, right? And people, some people cruise into the podcast and go, oh my gosh, when are we going to get to it? When are we going to get to 1776 and, and beyond and you know, the Battle of Yorktown and so on and so on? When are we going to get to these things? It's going to happen. But again, we're not cherry picking on this episode and we're not trying to do the abbreviated version of this. I, believe me, it could be this podcast. I mean, I, I, I ride the middle ground on this podcast. This podcast could easily be over already. I could have done a 10 to 20 episode short mini-series on the writings of the Founding Fathers and just covered the broad strokes and then just left it at that and walked away from the podcast. At the same time, I also could have turned this into a 50,000 episode never-ending series that covered absolutely every writing of the Founding Fathers that I could possibly track down or find. But I'm not going to do that to you. Number one, because nobody would listen as John Adams would say. And we've covered that letter before by John Adams, who didn't think that anybody would be around to study this stuff. But nobody would listen to that. And honestly, I can't say I blame him because, you know, listening to me, you know, talk about George Washington's crops is probably not exactly the most exciting discourse ever to be had on the face of the earth. But instead, I ride the middle ground. Uh, Again, we take TLDR and we throw it right out the window. TLDR does not apply. Too long, didn't read, or TLWR, as I say, too long, won't read. So if, uh, for those with short attention spans... Like or like I like to say, the, the attention span of a goldfish, this podcast is not for them. There's going to be a few people who cruise into this episode for the very first time. This is going to be the very first episode they ever hear, and it's going to be the last episode that they ever hear. Because, again, they, they suffer from that, that affliction, TLDR. It's an intellectual sickness. And it didn't just exist in my time. It existed in the time of the Founding Fathers. John Adams wrote about it. He didn't call it TLDR. He called it other things, but he did write about it, and I've read those uh, sections from John Adams. We've read one of those letters already. There's another one in particular that I can think of, another one of his writings that talks about that, that we're going to cover way down the road, probably, way, way, way down the road. You know, and for, for, for anybody who does cruise into this podcast and is suffering from TLDR, I'm sorry to hear that. And I certainly hope that you come back after you have uh, solved that problem. And you're willing and ready to study the lessons of history because, again, by light of recent events, we know that this is very, very important. But for you, the regular listener of this podcast, the history enthusiast, the one who engages in the study of history with some some form of enthusiasm, the one who's been listening to this podcast for some time, I thank you for being here. Uh, It's a great honor for me to have you here, uh, to be in the company of people who have such a great interest in history. There's, there's something about a person so interested in history that they're willing to spend their time doing this, um, listening to somebody else talk about the Founding Fathers and listening to somebody else read the letters of the Founding Fathers. That, that's, that's, a, that's a very uh, very important thing, I think, for, for society to have folks like you. And I, I thank you for being here. It's, a, it's, just, it's just fantastic always. I, I, you're the reason why I continue to do this, really. Um, so, you know, and, and on that note, I, I do have an update on the podcast I'm going to give you in the next section, just right, leading right into the letters that we read, or I'll save it till the end of the, the last section, one of the two. So just uh, stay tuned for an update to the podcast. But, you know, we're going to talk about some letters today, and we're going to get back into it, long-form podcast, talking about uh, the good writings of our founding fathers. And then, of course, as we learned on the previous episode, the women of the founding of the country. Very intelligent as they were, and very patriotic, and determined to be free. These were, it wasn't just men determined to be free, it was women determined to be free. And we're going to talk about that in the next section. Let's do that right now.
That's right, absolutely. We are going to talk about those letters. As far as that update on the podcast goes, here's the thing. I, over the next two months, roughly, uh, maybe as long as three months, but certainly the next two months, I am going to be so busy with a, with a pro, there's a certain project that I'm working on, and it's going to monopolize a, an absolutely huge amount of my time. On top of everything else that I've got going on, my, my job, thank goodness I still have that, but, uh, between my job and, my regular other responsibilities, and then this other thing that I've got going on. Going to be hugely busy. So I may have to amputate something, for lack of a better way of putting it. And no, it's not going to be one of my legs or my arms. It's going to be some portion of this podcast because it's the only thing that I have that I can actually cut a little bit of temporarily, and then um, and then seg and then, and then you know segue back into uh, what we're the ske- the tempo that we're doing now after this uh, this project is over with. So probably what's going to happen is is the Wednesday edition of the podcast, or more specifically the Thursday edition. Uh, I usually drop it Wednesday night, so it's available Thursday. Thursday morning, but it's technically the Thursday podcast. But anyway, the Thursday edition of the podcast, that short form episode that we do, is probably going to be curtailed uh, or eliminated in some fashion. And what I'll do is, uh, and I'll put a, an episode up this Wednesday reminding everybody who may who may miss this episode that that's the way it's going to be. And then I will probably, what I'll do is I may make suggestions for library episodes to go back and listen to that I think are particularly important to maybe listen to a second time. And it's just going to be a recommendation. Of course, you can go back and listen to any one of the other episodes that you want. We got a pretty good uh, long list of episodes at this point. Uh, This is going to be episode number 44 here. So we're creeping up on 50 episodes. So we've got a lot of content to listen to. So I'm going to make some recommendations of what you can go back and listen to. So on the Wednesdays uh, episodes for the next few months, I'm going to request that uh, if you do want to listen to the podcast, just go back and listen to a uh, a prior episode, something that you want to reinforce, you know, kind of like that chapter in the book that you want to read a second time just so you can capture everything that was talked about there. Same, same basic philosophy there. So I just wanted to make sure and give you a heads up on that. And again, there will be an update on that on the Wednesday episode of the podcast that I'll drop. I'll just record something and simple and talk about that and maybe some other miscellaneous things and then we'll uh then I'll make a recommendation of a, a library episode that you can go back and listen to. So in advance I want to thank you for bearing with me on that. I know changing the schedule to a podcast and making alterations can sometimes be, you know, difficult or challenging to work around because uh, people get used to listening to the podcast that they listen to on certain days of the week and things of that nature. At least in some cases they do. Hopefully you can find a library episode that you can go back and listen to on Wednesday and fill the gap there while I work on this other project. And again, thank you for bearing with me on that. So, let's get into this episode today. We are going to read a letter here. We're going to start off here with a letter from Mercy Warren, written to Abigail Adams on January 28th, 1775. And if you recall from the last, the previous episode, Abigail Adams had written a letter to Mercy Warren. And this is basically the reverse. This is the, the letter written to Abigail Adams prior to. And I did go back and pull this letter because I felt like there were some interesting things to be talked about in here. And it's good to get another woman on the podcast as a guest on the podcast. It really is because Abigail Adams can carry a lot of weight because that's one heck of a woman. She's an intellectual power, uh, Abigail Adams is, but... If we can get a few other women on the podcast to talk to us about what's going on during this period of time, then more's the better. We are going to do exactly that. So let's begin reading this letter. This was written from Plymouth, January 28, 1775. Quote, I think myself doubly obligated to my amiable friend that she has for once laid aside that ceremonious demand of a letter in return for every line she favors with me. 
Your last, I perceive, was wrote with a heart trembling, with the laudable feelings of humanity, lest your suffering country should be driven to extremities, and its innocent inhabitants be made the sacrifices to disappointed ambition and avarice. But I will hope yet a little longer for a more favorable termination of the distresses of America. But we cannot long continue in this state of suspense. It is, and ever has been, my poor opinion that justice and liberty will finally gain a complete victory over tyranny. What may be the intervening sufferings of the many individuals, heaven only knows. And to a superintending providence, we must leave the decision of the important contests of the day, who alone has the power to avert the evils we fear. End quote. Okay, simple introduction to the letter. She's talking about, you know, some of the uh, burdens and stresses that are that are being felt by the people, especially in Massachusetts, and especially the people immediately around Boston. During this particular period of time, you can kind of get a sense that, that she is under some stress and strain as well. Everybody is, especially, you know, women in their own way have to be concerned, especially like Mrs. Adams, for example, has to be concerned because her husband is a member of the General Congress, the Continental Congress, that is. She has to fear for his his safety on the one hand. She also has to fear for him being accused of being some kind of a traitor to the to the British uh, Empire and all the rest of it. It's, it's a great concern that she has. But other people as well, like Mercy Warren. She writes it here, quote, But we cannot long continue in this state of suspense. It is and ever has been my poor opinion that justice and liberty will finally gain a complete victory over tyranny. End quote. So the the colonies are the colony, especially Ma- Massachusetts, is wound up into a state of suspense. There is this buildup of forces, military buildup of forces, and I know again recent events, folks. Just I mean, this is fantastic that she writes it this way. You know the way she wrote this again. Quote, but we cannot long continue in this state of suspense. End quote. She, it's it's very very great choice of language that she has here. This 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 allows us to, given recent events, kind of put ourselves in in the place of the these these folks. Imagine being surrounded by an army or a military buildup of some kind. Again, keep in mind that Boston is being turned into a garrison city, and there's people in the world today, right now, this very second, who can who know what this feels like. This great military buildup, a seemingly impending attack. And everything is being wound up, wound up, wound up until suddenly there is a cataclysm. We've seen it in just the last few weeks, have we not? With our own two eyes, we've seen that kind of suspense. Now, we're a lot, most of us are not there. Some of us are. I'll give you, I mean, I, I know that there have been people from, for example, Ukraine who have downloaded this podcast. I don't know that I would describe them as regular listeners to the podcast, but there have been people there who've listened to the podcast. I know that. So it may be that somebody listening to this podcast is on the front lines of history in this regard, but they understand what that feels like. The suspense of everything, this build-up, 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 and then suddenly. That's what she's talking about. She's watching these troops get built up in Boston. More and more and more soldiers being brought into Massachusetts. But for what? What? Where is this going? But she's optimistic. Quote, It is, and ever has been, my poor opinion that justice and liberty will finally gain a complete victory over tyranny. End quote. And I hope that she's right about that, not just in her time, but in our time. In our time, we also hope for a victory over tyranny. Now, there's many forms of tyranny, aren't there? There's local tyranny, and there's foreign tyranny. What in the world are, is Roman talking about? Roman, for Pete's sake, would you just quit, quit speaking in riddles and tell us exactly what you mean? Yeah, to a certain degree, I will. You know, there is, there is this interesting talk of 
tyranny. Tyranny is a curious thing, you know, in some respects. People don't seem to be, you know, that concerned about a government, for example, or a military, for that matter, terrorizing its own citizens or its own subjects. They don't seem to be worried about that very much. The only thing they seem to concern themselves with is when that tyranny crosses a border. Now, why that is, I don't know. It is a baffling, baffling exercise in human psychology, is it not? I mean, really, because haven't you seen that before? Haven't you seen a situation where a people are being terrorized, oppressed, murdered in their own country by their own government, their own military, and nobody seems to care? But all of a sudden that tyranny crosses a border and then everybody seems to care. Why is that? What's the difference? Do the people being terrorized in their own country, do they want, don't they want to live as free as the people in the other country? Why don't their rights and their liberties matter as much as the people in the other country? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. Thank goodness that France and many other countries in Europe did not feel the same way about us in 1775 and 76 and 77, etc. Because they did intervene on our behalf. There's reasons for it. I mean, and they weren't altruistic all the time. The French did it because they hated the British Empire. But they did intervene on our behalf. And it wasn't a foreign squabble. It was an inter- it was an internal dispute within the British Empire. King George III was, was terrorizing and oppressing his own people. But thank goodness there were some folks in Europe who took issue with that. Regardless of their motivations, they took issue with it. Enough so that we did get some assistance in that regard. But I, I guarantee you there's people in the world today wondering and thinking to themselves, not only do they not get assistance while being oppressed by their own government, nobody even talks about it. It's long forgotten. And what does this do? It encourages, it encourages governments and militaries and other people to oppress their own citizens and subjects because they know nobody will say anything about it until they cross a border. So they just don't cross a border. They do it to their own people because of their own sick, perverse pleasure that they get from this kind of crap. And yes, the tyrant does get sick pleasure from terrorizing their own people. Tyrants always do. I don't know whether it's a fetish kind of thing with them. I don't know whether it's just that they're broken psychologically. I have no idea. Somebody's going to have to pick that one apart. You know, if, if, if anybody out there who's listening to my voice, who's in like high school and really is intellectually curious, and you're a great student of history and all the rest of it, and you have great aspirations academically, go, go to college and study psychology. Write your doctoral thesis on that, on tyrants, and why it is that they get sick pleasure from terrorizing their own people. And it's not just one particular kind of tyrant, it's every kind of tyrant. You've got your little tyrants and you've got your big tyrants. You know, the ones that do kind of small-time oppression and small-time tyranny, and then you got the big guys who do the really big kind of tyranny and oppression. You ever notice that? It's an interesting thought, it's an interesting discussion to have. To have. And I, you know, I really believe there's something to that, something to be had, something to be looked at there, studied, understood. Anyway, it's, it's interesting, the, the, you know, when you study history and you start listening to somebody like Mercy Warren, it's interesting the, the, the roads that your thoughts will travel down, especially when combined with current events. You take history from 1775 and 74, and you combine it with current events, and you get all these interesting thoughts about the way the world works, and the way governments, and people, and psychology, and all this works. This is the beauty of studying history, everybody. This is the beauty of it. It gets you thinking, doesn't it? Absolutely. It always does get me thinking about all kinds of things, and that's probably why, you know, a great many people don't want you to study history. Oh my gosh, did Roman just say that? Did Roman just say people don't want you to study history? Yep, that's exactly what I said. Let us continue reading the wisdom of from Mrs. Warren. Quote, I am very sensible with you, my dear Mrs. Adams, that by our happy connection with partners of distinguished zeal, integrity, and virtue, 
who would be marked out as early victims to successful tyranny. We should thereby be subjected to peculiar afflictions, but yet we shall never wish them to do anything for our sakes repugnant to honor or conscience. But though we may, with a virtuous crook, be willing to suffer pain and poverty with them, rather than they should deviate from their noble principles of integrity and honor, yet where would be our constancy and fortitude without their assistance to support the wounded mind. And which of us should have the courage of an aria or a portia in a day of trial like theirs? For myself I dare not boast, and pray heaven that neither me nor my friend may be ever called to such a dreadful proof of magnanimity. I do not mean to die by our own hand, rather than submit to the yoke of servitude and survive the companions of our hearts, nor do I think it would have been the case with either of those celebrated ladies had they lived in the days of Christianity, for I think it is a much greater proof of an heroic soul to struggle with the calamities of life and patiently resign ourselves to the evils we cannot avoid than cowardly to shrink from the post allotted to us by the great director of the theater of the universe before we have finished our part in the drama of life, end quote. Very well written. She writes a, a number of really good thoughts here. I'm really grateful to uh, Mrs. Warren for her contribution to the wisdom of the Founding Fathers and the women of the Founding Generation. Let's start from the top. Quote, I am very sensible with you, my dear Mrs. Adams, that by our happy connection with partners of distinguished zeal, integrity, and virtue, who would be marked out as early victims to a successful tyranny, end quote. There's that word again, virtue. You just can't get away from it, can you? How many how many more episodes are we going to hear that word? I'll give you a hint. It's a lot. It's just got to keep coming up. So if you think you can have a United States of America, a founding, a revolution, a declaration, a constitution, without virtue, you're wrong. I'm just going to say it. You're wrong. And I know there's probably going to be a voice out somewhere out there in the hinterlands of the world. Roman, for Pete's sake, how dare you? How dare you? dare you, Roman? How dare you say that we need virtue in order to have a constitution or a declaration? Who are you to lecture to us about virtue? You sick, twisted individual, you. You reprobate. How dare you lecture to us? I'm not lecturing to you. It's the Founding Fathers that are doing that for me. I'm just the messenger. Oh, and it's Mrs. Warren, too. It's not just the Founding Fathers. It's Mrs. Warren and Mrs. Adams and a lot of other women of the time. They're the ones who are lecturing to you. I'm not, and I don't know that I would call it lecturing to you. They're just telling you facts. Can you have freedom and liberty without virtue? They, uh, Judging by how often they use the word virtue to describe the character necessary for the time, no, you cannot have liberty and freedom without virtue. You can't. If you think you can, well, good luck with that. See how that works out for you. Remember what I said before. I mean, if you if you manage to take all of the virtue out of a society, nature abhors a vacuum. It would immediately be filled with what? Corruption. Every single time, every time I look at history, every single time I look at history, virtue is always replaced by corruption. Keep that in mind. It's going to keep coming up. And again, if you if you want to know what I mean by virtue, I've talked about it in previous episodes. It's not it's it may not be what you think it is, but I'll tell you what. Mrs. Warren gives you a hint here, and I, yes, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it because this is what these people believed. History is not what you want it to be. It is what it is. And Mrs. Warren has an opinion about where virtue comes from. Quote, had they lived in the days of Christianity, end quote. That's the virtue they're talking about. Again, I'm just the messenger. She's the one who wrote it on the page. I think it's rather fortuitous that she put 
virtue and the definition thereof, basically, in the same paragraph, so I didn't have to go looking for it to demonstrate the point. She just kind of lumped the two together. I'm sure she, I'm sure it was just a, it's just one of those things. It wasn't like she intended to do it. Uh, it's just worked out that way. Keep that in mind, everybody. And no, I'm not saying you have to be Christian. I'm not saying that at all. That's a personal decision for you. It's a personal decision for everybody. It's the same thing with, you know, if you want to be Muslim or whatever, what have you. It's a personal decision. It's your call. You do what you will. But I'm just trying to tell you what the Founding Fathers thought virtue was. Where did they get that idea from? They didn't come out of thin air. They didn't just make it up as they went along like we do today. And yes, we do just, nah, not everybody, obviously, but society has decided that we're just going to make up virtue as we go along. It's going to be continually redefined. It's going to change all the time, depending on what side of the bed you wake up on this morning, depending on what kind of mood you're in, and depending on whether or not your cat got run over by a steamroller or not, you know, the previous day and you're upset or whatever. And in the time of the Founding Fathers, there was some consistency to it. Not exactly consistently applied. That was a huge problem at the time, and we're going to talk about that later. Boy, are we going to talk about that later. But at least the source was consistent, which is a good thing. You don't, you don't want your virtue to be pegged to somebody's feelings or their mood in some particular day. That's a bad thing. That would be like gravity changing every day. And you never knowing when you step out your front door in the morning whether or not you're going to actually be grounded in terra firma. Terra firma, by the way, is the earth. You're not, you don't know whether or not your feet are going to stay firmly planted on terra firma or whether you're going to lift off into the sky. Imagine that. Thank goodness gravity is, is consistent. That's why we have that phrase, consistent as gravity. You ever wonder where that comes from? There you go. The things you can learn from reading a single paragraph from a woman who lived in 1774-75. I marvel at this. History is so very important. And this is why t the people who suffer from TLDR, by the way, gosh, I feel sorry for those people. I, you have no idea how much I feel sorry for them. They are adrift at sea with no sail, no rudder, just blown around by the wind and driven by the tides and the waves wherever it is that they go. I feel so sorry for them. And then there's this section here, quote, who would be marked out as early victims to successful tyranny, end quote. That's basically saying that people like John Adams and the Founding Fathers and all those people would be marked out as enemies of the British Empire if this tyranny is successful. And isn't that interesting? People, oftentimes, people who just sit around and say, I want freedom and liberty, and I want my neighbors to have freedom and liberty. Whether I like my neighbors or not, it doesn't matter. I still want them to have freedom and liberty. People who, people who are a voice for freedom and liberty are often singled out as the victims of tyranny. It, it's happened in every society in the history of the world. And Mrs. Warren knows that. That's why she said it. She's a student of history. She knows what tyranny does to people like that. But she continues, quote, willing to suffer pain and poverty with them rather than they should deviate from their noble principles of integrity and honor, end quote. In other words, if these women should have to suffer pain and poverty because of the actions of their husbands, so be it, because their husbands are doing the right thing. Their husbands are standing up for what needs to be stood up for, freedom and liberty. And thank goodness for women like Abigail Adams and Mercy Warren. That's why I say again, I said it in the previous episode, could the Revolutionary War have been won? Could the founding of the United States have happened without women such as Abigail Adams and Mercy Warren? And the answer is probably not, because these men could go off and do the job that they had to do hard as it was. Some of them had to go out and stand up in front of British soldiers, some of the best soldiers on the planet, and get shot at. And one of the reasons why they were able to do it, some of them, it's because they knew that somewhere behind the lines was this woman, this kind of woman, ready to support them and taking care of the family and the house and all and the property and all the rest of it while they were off getting shot at. 
So thank goodness for these women. There's no, there's no founding generation. There's no founding without these women. And they, they deserve to be mentioned. They deserve to be talked about. And that's why I'm, I'm taking uh, some time as, as we go to, uh, to dedicate some, some of these episodes to the, to the great women of the founding generation because they are so crucially important to the cause of liberty. And heaven forbid we ever live in a time where these kind of women do not exist. I, 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 I shudder at the very thought of it. Because what a dark day that will be. She mentions these two women, quote, the courage of an area or a portia, end quote. And she alludes to what happened to them later on down the line. Quote, I do not mean to die by our own hand rather than submit to the yoke of servitude and survive the companions of our hearts, nor do I think it would have been the case with either of those celebrated ladies had they lived in the days of Christianity, end quote. These two women, portia, the Portia that is referenced here, I believe to be a reference to the wife of Brutus, one of the assassins of Julius Caesar, who was a woman who who, who died, uh, I believe, after her husband, and it was believed to have been a suicide. And Aria, the Aria here is believed to be the wife of another Roman, possibly, you know, also suicide. So women that suicided themselves rather than live under a tyranny. And and you can begin to, to understand here that 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 thing I mentioned uh, an episode a few episodes ago, where I I do firmly believe the right thing to do was to assassinate Julius Caesar. There's there's going to be tons of people who disagree with me on that. By the way, tons and tons of people. There are going to be armies of people who disagree with me on that because oh, violence is never called for. Blah blah blah. You got to understand this was a different time. Now people don't really change at the end of the day. You know we're driven by the same emotions, the same feelings, the same kind of anger and avarice and jealousies and hatreds and greeds and all the rest of it. But in the Roman Empire, or the Roman Republic, rather, you know these people had been in. They lived in the time uh, where where kings were were. Everywhere. Everybody was ruled by some kind of a king for the most part. You know, people lived pretty hard lives back then. It wasn't like today. I mean, there are people who live hard lives today, don't get me wrong, but it's not near as bad as it was back then. People were much more attuned to tyranny than they are today because, you know, people have gotten soft about this kind of thing. And frankly, because most people don't study history, they have forgotten. But, you know, these these Romans, especially the Romans in the Senate at the time, they were much like the Founding Fathers that way. You can tell from Mercy Warren here, she's referencing Aria and Portia, for gosh sakes. And this is not, again, how many times are we going to hear these women quote something about Philip of Macedon, Aria, Portia, Brutus, and all the rest of it? How many times are we going to hear these women quote this? A lot. Why? Because they're students of history. These are very intelligent women. And just like these women, the the Romans in the Senate during the time of Julius Caesar were students of history, and they knew how dangerous a Julius Caesar was. You do not play games with that kind of person. You don't. You defend your republic. You defend your freedom and your liberty against somebody like that with knives in the Senate if you have to, because he's dangerous. And they understood it because the time they lived in necessitated them to understand that. And if they take to the Senate floor with knives and stab that tyrant to death, frankly speaking, I don't have a problem with it. Because that man was in the process of disassembling the entire republic. Now, did the assassins end up being successful at the end of the day? No. Does that matter? No, it doesn't. At least they tried, which is more than I can say for some people. You know, it would. You know, the world would be a lot better place if somebody would have knocked off Joseph Stalin a long time before he actually managed to engage in the ruin that he did. But nobody did. Nobody actually managed to knock that guy off. Wouldn't the world be a better place today? Does I mean, does anybody doubt that? Does anybody say to themselves, "Well, I'm sure glad Joseph Stalin didn't get assassinated back in the 1920s because you know, he, you know, it would have been terrible. You know, violence is never called for. We can't. Oh, really? Why don't you tell that to Joseph Stalin? How many, how many millions of his own people did he murder? 
How many people in Ukraine did he starve to death? Maybe you should catch the next plane to Ukraine. Good luck with that. Maybe you should catch the next plane to Ukraine and go to the cemeteries and find all the bodies that are in the ground because of Joseph Stalin and lecture to them about how violence is not necessary. Am I making my point very clear here? These people are dangerous. And aren't we learning that right now? Recent events? Haven't recent events taught us that these people are very dangerous? Boy, that history, she just keeps repeating herself over and over and over and over again. And the lessons just keep coming up again and again and again. And people just keep walking themselves blindly into a wall, wondering, what happened? I don't understand what happened. I marvel at this. So if anybody wants to, if anybody disagrees with me about Julius Caesar or Joseph Stalin, you can leave a review on the podcast and say, you know, Roman, I really don't think it was a good idea to assassinate a Julius Caesar or a Joseph Stalin. Uh, again, Joseph Stalin was not assassinated, but I sure wished he would have been. But uh, anyway, it's wrong to assassinate one of those people because, you know, it's violent and so on and so forth. Well, I don't know. We could have killed one person, Joseph Stalin, assuming somebody would have taken him out. And we could have saved, what, five million lives? That's not a trade you're willing to make? Okay, I get it. I understand. You know, and it's like Julius Caesar that way. And again, if they had been successful in saving the Republic, maybe all those people who were murdered and massacred under like a Caligula or a Nero wouldn't have happened. Maybe things would have been better. Wouldn't that have been worth the trade? I think it would have been. To get rid of a Caligula, for crying out loud? I mean, somebody did get rid of Caligula. That man was assassinated. Thank goodness. Yes, I said it. Thank goodness. And I'll keep saying it until the day I die. And if somebody wants to try to, you know, accuse me of being some kind of a, you know... I don't know, an extremist or something like that for saying that Caligula needed to be knocked off. I don't, the Romans thought he needed to be knocked off. At least a good, por- at least enough of them to uh, to actually have the job done. I don't think anybody was crying and weeping in their soup the day Cal- they heard Caligula died. I could be wrong. I just don't think I am. But when you get somebody like that, or a Nero, or whoever, with that kind of a murderous rage, yes, they should be knocked off. Well, that's one heck of a sidebar, isn't it? And again, these are the thoughts that come to mind when you start reading history. You start thinking about these things. Why did I have that sidebar about Julius Caesar, Nero, Caligula, and so and Stalin, and all the rest of it? Well, because Mercy Warren planted the thought when I started reading her words on Aria and Portia, and all the rest of it. I started thinking about these things. This is the this is the great gift that studying history will give you. It's the gift that keeps on giving. So if you ever wanted a reason to study history or how to convince your children or your friends to study history, here you go, right here. You know, the next time your kids come in the door from school and say, oh, history's boring, I hate studying it. You know, just play this podcast for them. Play this episode. Maybe that'll inspire them to understand why history is so very important. And again, and I, I, I'm serious about you folks leaving reviews if you disagree with me about Julius Caesar, Stalin, and all the rest of it. I, I'd, I'd really enjoy hearing back from you. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tear into you or anything of the sort if you leave a review like that. You know, like I've always said, gentlemen and reasonable people can always agree to disagree for the most part. Now, there are some things I think universal principles. I don't think we. Can, it's a little bit harder to to agree to disagree on. But you know, if you if Julius Caesar that being an event in history. Uh, sure. You can have an opinion one way or the other. There's not really a problem with that. Uh, I, I, I generally respect that people believe that, well, no, you shouldn't have assassinated Julius Caesar, so on and so forth. That's fine. That's a fine opinion to have. I just disagree with it because I, I know who that man was. And so did Brutus and so did all those other people. They knew who he was. They were terrified of a king taking over the Roman, the Roman Republic. They were terrified because they knew what that, they knew what that was. It's not something you trifle around with. It's dangerous. Let's continue reading what Mercy Warren has to say. Quote, You have doubtless heard that there is a detachment from the headquarters stationed in the neighborhood of Plymouth. People here are much at a loss what can be the design of this ridiculous movement. Most probably to try if they cannot provoke to some precipitant measures that may tend to divide and distress this country to a higher degree. End quote. 
That's an interesting thought. So she's concerned again about the troops moving in, the soldiers. Again, recent events tell us that, yes, when, when the soldiers start building up and building up, it's time to be worried. And in this case, it's an internal problem. Obviously, this is civil war we're talking about here within the British Empire. It's been referenced as a civil war by a great many people, including John Adams. The war hasn't started yet, but they can see it coming. And they're concerned about the government building up soldiers in places like Boston and now Plymouth. And they're concerned about it. They're very worried about this. And Mrs. Warren is very concerned, and she should be. I would be too. And she's uh, she's questioning what, what the situation is. Quote, people here are much at a loss. What can be the design of this ridiculous movement? End quote. But she has a theory, doesn't she? Oh boy. Quote, most probably to try if they cannot provoke to some precipitant measures that may tend to divide and distress this country to a higher degree. End quote. Provoke. So she uses this word provoke. This is not the first time that we have heard this theory floated. There was a, in a previous episode, I forget who it was. There was somebody else. It might, it may have been Mr. Tudor or one of his, uh, one of his, uh, somebody like him who raised the issue, raised this thought that the British Empire were trying to provoke the colonists to some kind of aggressive action so that they could have an excuse. And isn't that what tyrants usually try to do? And why, why, cause why would she have that theory? Why would she go to that theory that they're trying to be provoked? Somebody's trying to provoke them, and they're trying to divide and distress this country to a higher degree, as she says. I mean, where does she get this theory from? The answer is she's a student of history, and most likely she knows that that's how tyrants do what they do. They always try to create some kind of a crisis so that they can use it as an excuse to do what they do, to do what tyrants do. Keep an eye on that kind of thing, because it's, it's always out there. It's always out there. Like I said, recent events in Eastern Europe tell us that this is what tyrants do. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, it just it's just, again, it's, it's consistent as gravity. Just keeps keeps going on. Now let's read some more interesting thoughts from Mrs. Warren. And these are going to be, you know, this is very fascinating. This kind of gets to the personal lives of these women in the founding generation. And I like this insight into the lives of the women of the founding generation. Quote, Yours of January the 3rd begins with an instance of curiosity which I am willing to cherish. Nay, even to gratify, provided I may be indulged in return with the sight of Mr. and Mrs. Adams' correspondence with the lady referred to, for however I may fall short of Mrs. Adams in many female accomplishments, I believe I must own we are of an equal footing with regard to the one quality which the other sex so generously consigns over us. Though for no other reason but because they have the opportunities of indulging their inquisitive humor to the utmost in the great school of the world, while we are confined to the narrower circle of domestic care. But we have yet one advantage peculiar to ourselves. If the mental faculties of the female are not improved, it may be concealed in the obscure retreats of the bedchamber or the kitchen, which she is not often necessitated to leave. Whereas man is generally called out to the full display of his abilities, but how often do they exhibit the most mortifying instances of neglected opportunities and their minds appear, notwithstanding the advantages of what is called a liberal education, as barren of culture and as void of every useful acquirement as the most trifling, untutored girl, end quote. So, you know, for those of you who might think that this constant debate is, is a modern thing, it's not. You know, women have had these thoughts probably since time immemorial. Why, Roman, what thoughts are you talking about? What, 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 what is it in this particular section of this letter that you find particularly interesting and applicable to a lesson from history in the modern world? Well, I'll tell you. Quote, 
I believe I must own, we are on an equal footing with regard to the one quality which the other sex so generously consigns over us, though for no other reason but because they have the opportunities of indulging their inquisitive humor to the utmost in the great school of the world while we are confined to the narrower circle of domestic care. End quote. So she's talking about, you know, the men get to go out and have all the fun. In the great school of the world, as she calls it. However, women are usually consigned to domestic care. In other words, taking care of the house, children, etc. I often, uh, this is a curious, this, this is again, this, this verges into controversial territory. Oh boy, Roman, you better be careful. This is, this is crossing into some controversial ground here. This, uh, this has to do with the relationships of men and women in society. And oh my gosh, it's like, yeah, I know. But, you know, again, on, on this podcast, we don't, we don't shy away from the, uh, controversial topics. I, I certainly don't. I'm a student of history, and I have opinions, and I'm, I, I like to listen to Mrs. Warren and what she has to say. So do I, do I agree with Mrs. Warren here about this, uh, this issue that, that she takes with being consigned uh, to the uh, narrower circle of domestic care, as she calls it? I mean, she does reference it quite interestingly. Quote, With regard to the one quality which the other sex so generously consigns over us, end quote. She says generously, but she uses the word consigns. Now, I understand consign can simply mean, you know, to entrust. But typically, and I don't know about at the time, in the time of the founding, it typically has this negative connotation to it, to consign somebody to something. It typically has a negative connotation to it. I don't know if that was the case during the founding times, because again, we, we've 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 talked about before. The language is a little bit different, and the words are sometimes very different too. I explained it recently in an episode. Uh, the word "shew" s h e w instead of "show" they mean the same thing, but the the way they wrote it at the time, they they didn't write it s h o w. They wrote they wrote it s h e w shew, but it means show. So there are differences, but she almost seems to have an issue with that 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 thought. And she re- she references it, she kind of contrasts it with this advantage that she has, quote, "But we have yet one advantage peculiar to ourselves. If the mental faculties of the female are not improved, it may be concealed in the obscure retreats of the bedchamber or the kitchen, which she is not often necessitated to leave." End quote. So she's, she's, it's almost like she's contrasting a negative and a positive. She's like, well, we're consigned to domestic care, but it has its advantages in that we're not called out on the stage to demonstrate our abilities the same way that men are. And then she, she does understand that that can have a, that that's not always a good thing. The way men, because she, women, you know, throughout history have often lamented this, this concept that men get to go out and have all the fun, so to speak. But the fun is often not so fun as it sounds. Like, whether it's men who had careers in the 1940s or 50s and women did not, or whatever the case was. Because of this concept that she talks about here, quote, Whereas man is generally called out to the full display of his abilities, but how often do they exhibit the most mortifying instances of neglected opportunities? And their minds appear notwithstanding the advantages of what is called a liberal education, as barren of culture and as void of every useful acquirement as the most trifling untutored girl. End quote. So she's basically saying that sometimes when men are called out into the great school of the world, as she describes it, they're humiliated. Because they are shown to be unprepared, barren of culture, she says, quote, barren of culture and as void of every useful acquirement as the most trifling untutored girl, end quote. So because of this being called out into the great school of the world, men are humiliated at times. 
And women don't have to suffer, at least in her time. Women didn't have to suffer that. It could be concealed. Now, I don't think Mrs. Adams or Mrs. Warren have anything to conceal, because these are clearly vibrantly intelligent women. And if they were called out into the great school of the world, I venture to guess that they would be able to hold their own against a great many people, including a great many men, because of their education, their understanding of history, their passion for liberty and freedom. As we've seen in these letters recently, we have on fantastic display here uh, the, the, the great intellect of a Mrs. Warren and a Mrs. Adams. So I don't think they have anything to worry about, you know, but there is this concept. So, so again, this, this argument is, it, go, it probably goes back to the beginning of time, this kind of debate about the roles of women in society, domestic care versus going out into the great school of the world, as they call it. I, I take issue with what Mrs. Warren has to say here. Quote, I must own we are on equal footing with regards to the one quality which the other sex so generously consigns over us, though for no other reason but because they have the opportunities of indulging in their inquisitive humor to the utmost in the great school of the world, while we are confined, confined to the narrower circle of domestic care, end quote. Confined, she says. I don't think she understands how important this is. I think she's missing it. And I think women have had trouble with this since the beginning of time. Yes, I said it. That job that Mrs. Warren is talking about, domestic care, she, she just calls it domestic care. It, it's, that is a very simplistic, overly simplistic analysis of what it is that these women do. I talked about this before. We were talking about letters when we were talking about, we were covering some letters written from Mrs. Adams to Mr. Adams, and also from John Quincy Adams to his father. We've read one letter from John Quincy to his father, which I was very happy to read. As I, as I mentioned at the time, every time I read that letter, it brings a smile to my face because I, I know where John Quincy is going. I know that he's going to be president of the United States. And we were talking about how Mrs. Adams was having him read to her some of his history and some of the books that he was supposed to be reading, his education, and how she was watching over him and his education, his schooling, and so on and so forth. She was she was paying attention to it so that he would grow up prepared to succeed his father in just about every way that you can imagine, being a, a, a voice for freedom and liberty, but also succeeding him to be a future president of the United States, which, of course, nobody knew at the time that John Adams was going to be second president of the United States or that John, John Quincy was going to be the sixth president of the United States. Who knew? But that job of raising a John Quincy Adams is so crucially important, and to raising the rest of the children, his other, John Adams, other, John and Abigail Adams' other sons, their daughter, and their daughter especially, because what, what was, what was her future to be? Hopefully to be another Abigail Adams, to be that strong, intelligent, patriotic, liberty-minded woman, to be a voice for freedom and liberty. Because as I, as I said earlier in this episode here, I, I, I shudder to think of the day when this country does not have women such as that. And who's responsible for producing that, to making sure that that happens for the next generation? Well, that's an Abigail Adams or a Mrs. Warren, in part. It's also Mr. Adams' responsibility and Mr. Warren's responsibility. But that domestic care is so very important. And I mentioned earlier on this episode, and I believe I mentioned it on the previous episode, again, could the founding have happened? Could the revolution have happened? Would the Declaration of Independence have actually been defended successfully if it hadn't been for these women behind the lines in many cases, but so very close to the issues, so very close to the battle, supporting their husbands who were off getting shot at in many cases. Like with Martha Washington was surely the case. She never knew whether her husband was going to come back alive or dead for any number of reasons. Was he going to get shot off of his horse or was he going to get captured by the British and executed? Was the war going to fail and he was going to be imprisoned and hung for treason? But she supported him. She actually went out to the field 
to visit him at uh, when they were camped with the military. Not in combat, obviously, but when they were camped. She was out there on occasion. Could this war have been won without those women? I Honestly, I don't think so. And I think Mrs. Warren underestimates her value in her position with what she calls domestic care. It's a little bit more than that. It's quite a bit more important than that. I would not articulate it as just strictly, quote, domestic care, end quote. She may not be going to Congress, and Abigail Adams may not be going to the Congress. They may not have the ability to do so. But would their husbands be able to do what they do in the Congress if the women were not doing what they do, taking care of everything else? Probably not. Things would just fall apart. Or at the very least, it would be borderline insurmountable, the challenges that they would face. So I would say to Mrs. Warren, you know, don't don't think that this uh, this is a trivial thing that you have been consigned to, as she describes it, or, quote, confined, end quote. You know, to, I mean, this is not so simple as it sounds. It's not so trivial as it sounds. It's very important. Now, one might say, well, the women can go off to Congress and the men can do the domestic care. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. But here, here's the here's the bigger question. Are, are the women going to go off and get shot at in combat and fight the war? Or are the men going to have to do that? Probably the men are going to have to do that. Probably. It's really hard work. And I'm not saying that women can't do it in every instance. Some women can do it to some extent. But... Men are more readily built for that kind of thing than women are, and there's reasons for that. I mean, it sounds glorious and everything when you go off to combat and get shot at, you know, until you're actually there, and you're walking barefoot in the frickin' snow, marching from one place to the next, and you're basically, your feet are cracking open and bleeding because they're so cold and frostbitten, and you have very little supplies and food, and you have to haul this uh, this cannon around, or multiple cannons, horses, supplies, and all the rest of it. You know, it's not so glamorous. And women can thank their lucky stars that men are actually willing to go out there and do that kind of thing. I, I think that's under I think that's underestimated as well. But it's very it's a very interesting discussion. And there might be some folks out there who disagree with me on this, uh, and that's perfectly fine. Some women out there perhaps who disagree with me on this, that's fine. Uh, if you if you like, you can leave a review on the podcast and tell me so. I'm not going to get mad at you. Uh, we can all agree to disagree on these things. But again, I, the reason why I wanted to point this out is because number one, it's a very interesting window into the into the personal lives of these people during this time and what they thought about it. But it's also so, like I said, something I wanted to address because I think Mrs. Warren really underestimates her value in her position and what she does and how very important it was to her husband. Maybe her husband—I don't know whether it's that the husbands don't tell their wives this kind of thing, how important they are. Maybe that's the problem. But it's it's hugely important. It's, it's, it's undeniably important. And, you know, not just for their, their own generation, but for future generations as well. For us to be able to, like, like for example, I mean, clearly Mrs. Warren doesn't just spend her days, you know, consigned to the domestic care. She's obviously reading, she's studying, and this is probably so that she can better educate her children, so she can be a better teacher, but also so she, she can educate us on what an intelligent, articulate, patriotic woman sounds like, and what... If you if you if if a woman aspires to be of that kind of quality, what does that look like? What does that sound like? Well, good news, Mrs. Warren is showing us exactly what it sounds like by her her very very artfully written letter and her great wisdom that she has from her experience in the 1770s and uh, the surrounding decades. And I'm grateful for it. I'm very happy to have uh, been able to cover uh, both Mrs. Adams and Mrs. Warren on this podcast so that we can get some uh, some insight from women of this caliber and to know that you know. There were women there who had great, great ability to articulate the position of the time that the Founding Fathers spoke about in the, in the Congress and elsewhere. So that's the letter that we're going to cover for this episode, and I'm going to have some concluding remarks in the next section. Let's do that right now. 
All right, so I hope you enjoyed this this segue into the uh, the great minds of the women of the founding generation. I, I know I did. You know, whenever I read those letters, I think to myself, um, you know, it, it, it adds depth to the uh, the founding generation in a great many ways, and I, I'm grateful for it. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm glad we still have these letters, these documents that we can study and go to from uh, uh, Mrs. Adams, Mrs. Warren, and, and so many others so that we can learn uh, better what you know what they were thinking at the time, at the very least, but it also gets some, some great wisdom out of it at the same time. So, you know, some of you folks may be asking out there, you the, the especially the history enthusiast out there, you know, when are we going to get out of 1774, 1775? I don't know. Maybe you're maybe you're maybe you're eager to to move on. I know I am actually. There's a great many things that I want to talk about. Honestly, there's things I want to talk about that happened in 1787, between then 1791, and so and beyond and into the 1800s. There's there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. But yeah, we're gonna get there. It's gonna take some time. Like I said, you know. When I set out to do this podcast, I thought to myself, you know, there's a couple of different ways that I can do this. I can do the long form of it like I'm doing now, which isn't the longest form I could do, but it is long form. Or I can do kind of a short run thing. It's maybe, oh, I don't know, 100 episodes, 200 episodes. But there's so much to talk about, and there's so much little nuance to it, and there's so many little side conversations to be had. You know, and a thing I didn't really anticipate was, you know, s- certain current events happening that really shed light on the lessons from the Founding Fathers. There are so many things that could be learned from the Founding Fathers in every part of the world, and I've said it before, you know, that these lessons are not, they're, they're borderless and they're timeless. And there are some folks in Eastern Europe who could who could really benefit from learning these lessons, not because it's the exact same scenario, that's not what I mean, but because some of the lessons actually do cross over and apply to different scenarios. I mentioned it before, the well-regulated militia. How are you supposed to defend your country if you do not have a well-regulated militia? I don't know. And we're figuring that out in real time, as we speak, with real people. So, again, yeah, these lessons, they, they are... Very clear at times. Sometimes they're not as clear. Sometimes they are. In this case, like with the well-regulated militia, they're very clear. Very controversial topic, I know. Some people out there are going to be like, oh my gosh, Roman, how dare you talk about a well-regulated militia? It's so terrible. It's antiquated. Okay, yeah. Well, it's not antiquated for the people in Eastern Europe right now. It's very applicable there. But I know I know the usual argument. Oh, it's not going to happen here. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I've heard that before, too. And I'm sure, I'm sure the people in Eastern Europe were thinking that once upon a time, too. Well, it's not going to happen here. Okay, well, turn on the news and let me know what's happening there. Yeah, and it's not just that lesson. It's it's a multitude of other lessons, like the Declaration of Independence that we've already talked a little bit about to kind of set the stage for all of the stuff that's yet to come. That document is so very important, and we're, we're very lucky to have it. We're blessed to have it, you know, and it's not, it's not really luck. I mean, it was blood, sweat, and tears that was put into that document. A lot of people had to die for us to be able to have that document. And the next time, you, by the way, you look at a copy of the Declaration of Independence, I hope you see that. I hope you see the the people who had to die for that document to be real, to exist, in any kind of a uh, an effective form. You don't just write something like that and then it then it happens. It doesn't work like that. You have to you have to actually put bodies in front of bullets for that thing to happen. So as as this country marches on, and we are grateful to have a government constituted under the Constitution of the United States of America, which is a great thing, by the way. You know. We have the Bill of Rights, and we have these amendments to the Constitution, we have the Declaration and all the rest of it. It's just, um, it's a great thing that we have, and let's hold on to that. Let's hold on to the Bill of Rights. Let's not get rid of that. Let's not do that. Let's not do something stupid. And let's hold on to that Constitution as best we possibly can, and let's learn why. Why should we hold on to the Declaration of Independence like we do? Why should we hold on to the Bill of Rights like we do? Well, we're going to find out as this podcast marches on. So thank you for joining me on this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. 
And if you um, if you have any comments, questions about anything that we talk about here, leave a review on the podcast. You don't have to say how wonderful the podcast is, by the way. Again, I don't fish for reviews because I'm looking to draw attention to the podcast for advertisers and what off what whatnot. There's no advertisers on this podcast. Like I said, the only podcast that I had that made any money was the Patreon podcast, and right now that's under reconstruction so to speak. You don't have to say what what a great podcast this is or anything of the sort in the review. And you also don't have to say how terrible a podcast it is either. But just put a question in there. Say, hey, you know, uh, listener to the podcast had a question. What about this? And I'll, I'll bring it onto the podcast and I'll answer it. Or if you have a disagreement and you, you don't agree with something I said, just put it in a review and say, hey, I was listening to this episode and he, you know, Roman said this and I, I disagree with it because of this. And I'll bring it onto the podcast and I'll talk about it. So if you if you feel so motivated to leave a review of that nature, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, this is our study group, after all. On this podcast, we uh, we come together. Uh, I may I may lead the study group, so to speak, and curate this thing. But uh, you, the uh, the participant in the uh, in the study group, the other side of the study group, uh, I really appreciate you being here. I, I hope to see you on the next episode of this podcast. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing out. Thank you.